Welcome to Seize the Day, a podcast from the Duke University Marine Lab. I'm Lisa Campbell, and we're back again with an episode from our Conservation and Development series. In this episode, Masha Edmonston and Brandon Gertz dive into the world of deep sea mining. Although deep sea mining is more of an aspiration than a reality at the moment, that could change in the near future as technological advances, mineral prices, and regulatory frameworks shift and evolve. Masha and Brandon focus on the possibilities for deep sea mining in three Pacific island nations, where deep sea minerals exist, but where the risks, rewards, and resistance associated with mining have played out very differently. As they take you across the Pacific and to the bottom of the ocean, Masha and Brandon speak to deep sea explorer and researcher, Professor Cindy Vandover, and PhD student, Betta Menini, to learn more. I'll turn it over to Brandon and Masha now. Imagine that you are standing at the very bottom of the ocean. It's pitch black all around you. The light of the sun doesn't reach you here. It's smothered by the mass of water pressing down from above. Twelve Empire State Buildings could be stacked on top of you without breaking the surface. It's a completely different world down here. As you switch on your flashlight, you're treated to an incredible view. An octopus with wings floats past, seeming to fly through the still water. Nearby, a herd of squishy pink animals with tube feet shuffles through the silt, looking for food. Through it all, everything is strangely quiet, until suddenly, it's not. In the distance, you hear a small humming noise. It gradually builds growing stronger until it becomes a screaming, grinding sound, blocking everything else out. Suddenly, it comes into view. A plume of dust rising hundreds of feet above the seabed. And at the base, a monster. But not one with fins or scales. This monster is made of metal. It trundles across the seafloor, sucking everything in its path into its steely jaws. Why is this strange machine here, in this deep, remote place? It's not science fiction. It's because of a process called deep sea mining, and it could happen sooner than you might think. My name is Brandon Gertz. And mine is Masha Edmondson. And today we're going to talk about the strange world of deep sea mining. It hasn't happened yet, but miners are exploring resources in the deep sea right now. It's a topic of hot debate as groups argue over whether deep sea mining will be good or bad for island countries where deep sea resources are found. In this podcast, we'll be looking at the debate about deep sea mining, the risks, the rewards, and the resistance mining has sparked. While companies are also making plans to mine in international waters, we'll be focusing specifically on the risks, rewards, and resistance in three Pacific island nations. Papua New Guinea, the Cook Islands, and Fiji. As we go, we'll be talking to deep sea experts, Dr. Cindy Vandover and PhD student, Elisabetta Manini, about the environmental and human impacts of deep sea mining and the actions that can be taken to avoid them. Over two thirds of the world's surface is covered by water. On a globe, the ocean can look like a solid block of blue, 
interrupted only by continents. But if you look closely, you may be able to make out tiny dots among the blue. Those are small island nations dispersed across the Caribbean, the Atlantic, the Indian, and the Pacific Ocean. Many are recognized by the United Nations as small island developing states, a distinct group to facilitate international collaboration. Right now, these states have become one of the main focal points of plans to mine the deep sea. There are two reasons why. The first is the unique economic struggle that the island nations have to deal with. This is due in large part to their remote geography. Island nations can be thousands of miles from the nearest continent, which makes goods more expensive, income sources like tourism harder to come by, and environmental disasters harder to recover from, which makes island nations more vulnerable to economic struggles. This makes any opportunity to boost the economy, like deep sea minerals, more appealing. The other reason island nations have become a focus of deep sea mining interest has to do with a feature of international law. Every coastal country has rights to an area of the water around it called an exclusive economic zone. This zone was defined in the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea in 1982. It says that coastal states have full, exclusive control over the economic use of the ocean on their coast for 200 nautical miles. That's a pretty big space. If you drove a boat across the ocean at 60 miles an hour, it would take you four hours and 20 minutes to get from the beach to international waters. Here's where that feature comes in. With small island states, these spaces get even more impressive. That 200 nautical miles of control doesn't just extend from one coast, but surrounds the island. To make matters more extreme, Many nations in the Pacific are made up of more than one island, and the zone extends from each one. With a little geometry, you can probably imagine just how those numbers stack up compared to the exclusive economic zones of countries based on a continent. The area of the exclusive economic zone for a country with a long coastline like Argentina is less than half of its land area. An island state like the Cook Islands, which we'll talk about later, has a land area smaller than New York City. Its exclusive economic zone, though, is over 700,000 square miles, over 12 times the area of the state of New York. With that much space to work with, you might guess that at least some of those island nations have valuable resources in their exclusive economic zone, including mineral ones. That's true. And mining companies have been especially interested in resources that are controlled by island countries in the Pacific Ocean. It's these specific island nations that will be most exposed to the risks, rewards, and resistance that deep sea mining brings. So what is deep sea mining exactly? We asked Dr. Cindy Vandover, a professor at Duke University who specializes in deep ocean science, to help us understand. This emergent mining industry or interests, um, they're focused in the in the deepest waters on these polymetallic sulfides at, at hot springs. And hot springs come in two varieties. They're active where the fluid is coming out and then inactive. And when they go inactive, that may be a more suitable place to look for the metals, copper, iron, zinc in those sulfides. The biggest areas are the manganese nodule fields. Those manganese nodules obviously have manganese, but they're also rich in cobalt and nickel. 
manganese nodules, you know, they're the little potatoes on the seafloor. So it looks, they just lie right on the surface of the mud in, and sometimes in very, very high densities, like almost touching one another. That's pretty extraordinary that these metals are just lying there to be harvested as the miners like to call it. And then the third resource is the cobalt crusts, which occur often on seamounts uh, and other flat, high relief regions of the, of the seafloor where the currents bring a lot of minerals, metals to precipitate on the rocks. And how are these resources going to be mined? Well, we don't know yet. <laughs> we have some ideas. There's one company called Nautilus Minerals that had developed three mining tools that would be work on the seafloor as remotely operated vehicles, and they would grind up the sulfides, gather it up into piles, stockpiles, and then move it up through riser pipes to a surface ship. And then the surface ship would dewater those that material and then move the minerals, the ore, onto a barge and, and it would be shipped back to the coast. For manganese nodules, there are different kinds of designs trying to minimize the sediment plume that could be created that would just skim along the surface of the sediment, pick up the nodules, leave most of the sediment behind, and then again, pump them up through a riser pipe. For cobalt crusts, I assume it has to be a grinding tool of some sort. I don't know much about the prototypes. Elisabetta Menini is a current PhD student specializing in deep ocean issues, also at Duke University. She helped us understand why these mining companies are turning their attention to the deep sea. On land, we are finishing the good quality mineral rocks that have minerals in it. So <laughs> pretty much like the percentages of copper and the percentages of cobalt and manganese or iron that are in our land reserve, they are in a minor percentage than what we had 100 years ago. Also procedure to like take them out it's I guess it change and it's like it's more difficult it's more expensive and they are trying to find a way to save money one of the things that you they can do is to take the minerals I mean the type of minerals that are in the deep sea uh, they started to analyze I don't know in the 50s or in the 70s when they start to explore the deep ocean and they start to understand oh we can use this these have been mining, that's why we're talking about that. That explains what miners are looking for. The idea is for a mining company to get an island state to agree to let it mine in its waters through a contract or lease. Then, when the goods are sold and the business is taxed, for example, both sides benefit. But if there's so much potential, why aren't deep sea mining products on the store shelves right now? The truth is, that no countries or companies have managed to mine the deep ocean for profit yet. It's a new and risky industry. And where they have tried, there have sometimes been serious consequences for the companies and countries involved. Those difficulties are what we mean when we say we're exploring the risk of deep sea mining. And that theme of risk will take us to Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea is a Pacific island nation north of Australia. Like many small island developing states, it isn't wealthy. According to the United Nations, the average person in Papua New Guinea earns less than $2,000 per year. Over a third of the population is in poverty. Even so, Papua New Guinea's economy has been getting stronger since 2010. That's mainly because it's been boosting its exports of natural resources. Those natural resources include things like petroleum gas, 
but they also include minerals like gold and copper. You might have already guessed what comes next. Trying to boost the economy further, Papua New Guinea decided to take a risk. In 2011, it made a deal with a company called Nautilus Minerals. Nautilus wanted to be the first in the world to successfully mine and sell minerals from the deep ocean. The plan was this. Papua New Guinea would give Nautilus permission to mine for copper, gold, and zinc in the deep ocean along its coast. If the project worked and Nautilus was able to sell the metals it collected, the country would earn 15% of the profit. As with any gamble, Papua New Guinea had to buy in for a chance to earn. The cost of the investment? $120 million out of the government treasury. If the risk had paid off, the chance Papua New Guinea took on the brand new deep sea mining industry would have been worth it. Instead, everything started falling apart. Marine scientists warned about the potential for the project to damage some of the rarest marine environments on Earth. Because deep sea environments have high levels of endemism, unique and fascinating animals like giant tube worms, sulfur-eating mussels, and at least 20 entirely new species were threatened by the project. And marine scientists weren't the only ones raising alarms. Coastal indigenous peoples also protested the project. They emphasized concerns about environmental impacts as well as their own spiritual connections to the ocean. We'll tell you more about the environmental consequences of deep sea mining later in the episode. The point here is the environmental risk became a liability. Investors in Nautilus Minerals, concerned about the project's cost and risk to their reputation, pulled out. The shipyard that had been building Nautilus's collection vessel sold it to another buyer because Nautilus couldn't afford it. Finally, Nautilus Minerals went bankrupt. The project was shut down. The government of Papua New Guinea lost its investment. The $120 million risk had no return. Nothing. This case in Papua New Guinea emphasizes just how risky deep sea mining investments can be. Even after this failure in Papua New Guinea, Multiple other Pacific Island nations are considering opening up mining explorations to companies in their waters. So why are countries still willing to take the risk? The answer has to do with the other side of the calculation, the potential reward. To understand the rewards that Pacific Island nations are still hoping to get from deep sea mining, we'll be traveling over 3,000 miles east across the Pacific to the Cook Islands. The Cook Islands are a scattered network of small islands in the Western Pacific. We mentioned at the start of the show that these 15 islands together contain less land area than New York City. The most striking feature of these islands, though, is their distance from one another. Because they're so spread out, the Cook Islands can, hypothetically, take full advantage of international law on exclusive economic zone size. It effectively means that less than 1% of the Cook Islands territory is on land. Numbers like these have led to calls by leaders of some island nations to refer to their countries not as small island states, but as large ocean states. What does that mean for deep sea mining? It means that the Cook Islands, with fewer than 18,000 people and a GDP of 300 million US dollars, officially controls all access to 10 billion tons of deep sea minerals. These minerals could hypothetically earn tens of billions of dollars for the Cook Islands and other nations in similar positions. 
that kind of reward is hard to pass up. Unlike Papua New Guinea, the Cook Islands have few natural resources on land that its citizens can harvest and sell. The Cook Islands doesn't even have a government authority responsible for mining on land. Most of their income today is tied to tourism and fishing. All this makes the idea of strengthening the Cook Islands economy by selling deep-sea mining permits very attractive. While there are those against it, the Cook Islands have made major strides toward getting deep-sea mining started. They've passed new legislative acts that create frameworks for planning and designating areas for mining activities, and they've also established a Seabed Minerals Authority. Prime Minister Mark Brown says that the Cook Islands government is trying to balance environmental conservation with economic development. All mining legislation must work within the boundaries set by environmental laws created to protect marine areas. By enacting a policy framework that takes into consideration the environmental risk of deep-sea mining, the Cook Islands is hoping to avoid some of the risks while focusing on the economic rewards of mining. By diversifying the economy, the Cook Islands plans to reduce its economic vulnerability. That may now be an even bigger priority given the global pandemic impacting tourism, which is usually the driver of over half of the Cook Islands economy. It's not just the government supporting deep sea mining. A study by Pedersen and Tawake in Ocean and Coastal Management showed that most local Cook Islands stakeholders, including traditional and religious leaders, are not against allowing mining in their country's waters. That's different from Papua New Guinea, where firm local resistance helped derail the plans of Nautilus Minerals. Even the opposition party of the Cook Islands, which used to support a 10-year ban, switched its position in 2021. In its statement, the party acknowledged the possible benefits of deep-sea mining to the Cook Islands economy. For now, the Cook Islands seem to believe that the potential reward is worth the risk. Many scientists and other Pacific Island nations have been less willing to make that conclusion, often based on environmental concerns. So before we get into our third case in Fiji, it's important to consider those potential impacts on ocean ecosystems and the people who depend on them. We have to understand what the implications are, environmental implications are, whether or not it happens, just because there's the potential that it could happen. Dr. Cindy Vandover has spent her career researching life at the bottom of the ocean. She was the first woman pilot of the submersible Albin, a human-occupied underwater vessel, and has taken trips to explore the deep sea in person. I was really lucky on my very first dive to the Rose Garden hydrothermal vent site on the Galapagos Spreading Center. This is kind of now the historic site. This is back in 1985, I hate to admit, but two worms. We landed right smack dab in the middle of a field, well, not in the middle, on the edge of a field of two worms. And giant two worms, they can be as tall as me, and they're about a bigger, bigger round as, oh, I don't know, uh, well, they're about an inch or, inch or so in diameter, a couple centimeters in diameter. They have a bright red plume, white, tubes that gather together in clusters like you know a bouquet of roses it's really extraordinary and the water is incredibly clear you know you might think oh my gosh you can't see anything in the deep sea but when you turn on the lights when you're a mile and a half down the water is crystal clear and so these animals the contrast of the white tubes the red plumes and then black basalt because you're on zero h crust it's the youngest rock on the planet right that's 
apart from a volcanic eruption. Well, it is a volcanic, a submarine volcanic eruption. It just boggled my mind that this could all have been down there. We never knew about it. I mean, it was just, I felt so privileged to, to see that world. And, and it's not just the two worms, there's things crawling all over them, strange, I mean, curious looking fish that just kind of lie like they're like a kitten in a in a basket among the two worms. I don't know. It's just just remarkable things that I never expected to see. Uh, yeah, very special place. We asked Dr. Vandover about the impacts mining may have on deep sea ecosystems. The scientific community and the environmental managers are keen to understand where that plume goes and how much of an impact it might have. An important thing is that the plume will be larger than the area that's disturbed by the mining tool for these manganese nodules. And then the plume, you know, depending on, it'll have some fallout, the particles will fall out, sediment will fall out. And so it has the potential to bury organisms, it has the potential to bring stored carbon into the water column where it can be remineralized into CO2 and, and other materials. And I think there's, there's concern about in the near field where the sediment plume is dense, that there'd be uh, masking of bioluminescent signals, perhaps clogging of filter feeding mechanisms. Um, so it's a lot of different things to tackle. If you're, if you're thinking about an environmental impact assessment and going out and um, doing some preliminary experiments to see what the effects are, it's pretty intensive observational, trying to, trying to just understand even the plume dynamics of a simple, simple disturbance on the seafloor and given the quality of the sediments, the type of sediment that's down there. But let's take the sulfides first. I think there's, um, the sulfides probably have a, as I understand, have a greater chance if, if the fine sulfides get into the water column that can be picked up by organisms and for the crusts and, and for the manganese nodules, especially picture the crusts they have, the crusts on seamounts often have very old long-lived corals and all the invertebrates and other organisms that are associated with those corals. So if you were to mow those down, it's not clear how long it would take for them to recover. The recovery is a question on those crusts. How would you ever get things to come back? How long would they be gone? For the corals on seamounts, we're talking hundreds, you know, centuries to, to longer. Dr. Vandover also told us that deep sea mining impacts may bring potential concerns for humans on the surface too. I think there's potential for insidious effects that will go undetected until it's too late. And that would be, you know, shame on me, shame on us for not having tried to figure out what those things are. And we are trying, but I, I just, uh, you know, some of this, we just don't know how to, which questions to ask. This is the, we don't know what we don't know part of that. These environmental and human concerns are very important to some Pacific Island nations. While Cook Island stakeholders generally support mining exploration for the economic rewards it may bring, others have decided to oppose the process. That brings us to our third and final theme of today's episode, resistance. Earlier, we talked about the risks of deep sea mining with Papua New Guinea and why countries like the Cook Islands are continuing to explore this option for economic rewards. But now we will dive into why some islands, like Fiji, are resisting deep sea mining altogether. Although classified as a developing country, Fiji is one of the most economically developed countries in the South Pacific, with a GDP of 5.4 billion US dollars. And it is also one of the most attractive for tourists and travelers. Tourists come from all around the world to experience natural environments such as lush rainforests, 
Warm sandy beaches with crystal clear waters and vibrant coral reefs teeming with life just about everywhere you look. Fiji is also rich in mineral resources. They have large seafloor sulfides and high deposits of copper, gold, silver, and zinc, making it the ideal spot for deep sea mining. So why are they against it? Well, in the past, Fiji actually permitted exploration licenses for deep sea mining within its exclusive economic zone, with investments from the European Union to explore for minerals. It wasn't until it was made public that these licenses were close to key reefs and fishery resources that it started to raise concerns. As communities and environmental organizations begun to sound the alarm, the government of Fiji decided to listen. A report from the World Wildlife Fund found that the Fijian economy would not get the greatest benefit of deep sea mining within its own exclusive economic zone. Similar to the promises of economic and social prosperity for the Pacific people from land-based mining efforts, the Secretary General of the Pacific Conference of Churches stated, quote, Our lived experiences in the Pacific show clearly that powerful corporations benefit the most while it is our people who bear the cost of destruction of our natural environment, unquote. Instead, most of the benefits would go to international stakeholders. And international is what deep sea mining companies are. Nautilus Minerals, the company that failed to get deep sea mining started in Papua New Guinea, was based in Canada, two of the most important companies that are working with Pacific Island nations to mine the deep sea right now are called Deep Green Metals and Duma. Duma is based in Belgium, while Deep Green, like Nautilus, is registered in Canada. No company planning on deep sea mining is based in the Pacific Island nation whose waters they'll be mining in. Many of those mining companies have more money than the entire Pacific Island government, which can give them the power to decide who gets to profit from mining. That power imbalance could be a big problem for Pacific Island nations, as it has been in the past. That lack of fair economic reward led Fiji to focus on environmental, social, and economic costs of deep sea mining to emphasize resistance. Prime Minister of Fiji, Josiah Bainarama, has officially recognized the need for robust research and environmental protections before any deep sea mining occurs in Fiji's waters. He accredited this to the majority of Fijians relying economically on ecosystem services and tourism, provided by the marine environments. Many indigenous communities rely on the ocean, and similar to Papua New Guinea, they are also concerned about the potential for deep sea mining to degrade and devalue their ancestral connections to the ocean. This could lead to marginalization, disenfranchisement, and may threaten their food security. Another potential major cost of mining is the economic impact to tourism. Tourism is of special note here, and not just because it's Fiji's biggest industry, worth $891 million U.S. million annually. A 2016 survey conducted by Griffith University asked 102 tourists how likely they were to return to Fiji based on their experience. Answers were typically positive. 85% of the tourists said that they would return based on their time snorkeling, diving, and relaxing on the beach. The last question on the survey asked whether tourists would still be willing to come back if Fiji allowed deep sea mining in its waters. The numbers dropped. 56% of the people said that they would not return if mining occurred. And 62% of the tourists believed that the overall experience of the coral reef would be a lot worse. 
the impacts on the annual GDP could be significant. Even a 1% decline in dive tourism visitation would result in an economic loss of 1.3 million U.S. dollars per year. Given that it's unclear what the economic value of deep sea mining would be, and due to the collapse of Nautilus minerals we talked about earlier, Fiji decided that deep sea mining wasn't worth the risk. At the Pacific Island Forum in 2019, Prime Minister Josio Bainarama called for a 10-year moratorium on deep sea mining. Clearly, there are stark differences between Pacific Island nations' responses to the risks and rewards of deep-sea mining. Papua New Guinea took the risk of being first, and failure there served as a cautionary tale for neighboring islands. Some, like the Cook Islands, have decided that with a policy framework to guide the process, the possible reward to their economy is still worth the risk. Others, like Fiji, have chosen resistance. In 2021, Pacific civil society organizations called for a global ban on deep-sea mining, highlighting that Pacific peoples had, quote, a moral obligation to protect it against exploitation and destruction, unquote. The leader of the Pacific Network on Globalization stated, quote, scientists have given clear warnings about damage to oceans and the link to climate change, unquote. These different approaches to deep-sea mining may cause conflict between these island states. If some states realize an economic benefit from deep-sea mining, while others do not, wealth gaps could be created, and environmental damage might spill over from mining to non-mining nations. People and ecosystems could be hurt. So how can we approach these problems? We asked Elisabetta Menini and Dr. Van Dover for their thoughts. In terms of uh, regulatory and management measure, there are area-based management tools like marine protected areas. They're right now under consideration, at least in area, in area beyond national jurisdiction. At national level, it is up to the nation that has the mineral resource in their exclusive economic zone to put in place uh, some sort of area-based management tools such as marine protected areas. What like an area-based management tool or an MPA should do, it would be to represent the environment uh, well enough to maintain uh, enough distance uh, for maintaining the genetic connectivity between the same type of environment in that area of the ocean, as well as be big enough to not get the plume or anything that it could be like detritus or anything like slurry or something that can come up from the actual extraction of minerals when it will start happening. That is one of the solutions that we can do now. And that is what I am uh, studying more. In terms of like how technology can help this, I cannot arrive at that level of details to understand what is possible or what is not possible. All the engineers that I've talked to so far, they just say like, everything is possible if we have the money to do it. So it's like, you just have to tell me what I can do or what I cannot do, and I will make it for you. But 
that is up to you to give me the money for it. So it really depends on how much investment there is uh, on technology and how much communication there is between biologists and engineers. So spatial planning and, and protecting areas is, is certainly important, and that's Betta's interest and expertise. I think it depends on what impact you're concerned about. So if you're concerned about noise, then you think about, well, how do you mitigate the noise impacts or how much, how much will you allow? What's your conservation objective or your environmental management objective? What's allowable? So noise, the plumes, how much of a plume can you allow? And there's ways to encourage the contractors, if they're permitted to mine, to minimize that plume or the plume impact through modifications of the mining plan, through modifications of the vehicle, vehicle design, you know, how the vehicle moves over the seafloor, how fast it moves, where it moves, when it moves. If you're concerned about marine mammal migration and the noise that the shipping is going to make, then you think about how do you time your mining activities and the noise so it doesn't interfere with the migration route. So, I mean, it, it involves every kind of scientists you can think of, I think, to, to address ways to mitigate some of these environmental impacts. Due to the recent interest in deep sea mining in national and international waters, other researchers are proposing some solutions to reduce seabed mining impacts. Researchers from the University of Exeter offer three ideas. The first is banning all seabed mining where the social and environmental costs are calculated to exceed potential benefits. This can be done through cost-benefit analysis and studies of which uses of the ocean can coexist in the same place. Second, creating a fund based on mining profits to cover research, monitoring, and disaster compensation could help cover the costs of deep-sea research. In the event of a disaster, that would also ensure that money is available to make sure that Pacific Island nations aren't forced into debt. Lastly, the researchers recommend working toward a circular global economy. That basically means that in the future, we should do a better job of recycling and reusing the resources we already have so that we don't need to dig up more. Key points of that idea include extending product lifespans, reducing overconsumption of technology, and giving countries the tools they need to recycle metals. This would help limit the need for minerals extracted from the environment, including the deep sea. On today's episode, we've talked about the risks, the rewards, and the resistance that Pacific Island nations are faced with due to future deep sea mining. As interest in mining continues to grow, it is important to remember the damage deep sea mining can cause to the ocean and the people who depend on it. There are no easy answers to this problem, but there are tools available to help Pacific Island nations make the best, most informed decisions they can for their economies, their cultures, and the health of their oceans. As plans on all sides move forward, making sure those tools are used as often and as effectively as possible should be a priority everyone can agree on. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Seize the Day. To learn more about deep sea mining, visit the episode page on our website at www.sites.nicholas.duke.edu/seize the day. 
Today's episode was written and produced by Masha Edmonston and Brandon Gertz. Final editing was done by Brandon Gertz. Our theme music was written and recorded by Joe Morton, and our artwork is by Stephanie Hillsgrove. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at SeizeTheDayPod, and if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating in Apple Podcast and recommend us to your podcast listening friends.